little bit more from uh, before I met Mitch. I grew up in a Catholic household. Did anybody, anybody grow up Catholic around here? Okay, yeah, there you go. So, like, in, in Wisconsin, I mean, nine out of every ten people you meet uh, were born and raised Catholic. So it's pretty common. In my context, we're mostly talking to people who are uh, either ex-Catholic or currently Catholic or, or Lutheran. So that was what I grew up with. And then, uh, and then when I was about seven years old, we joined a Lutheran church. My parents were reading the Bible, and they're like, I'm not really sure it lines up with what we're hearing in our, our Catholic context. And so we joined a, a Lutheran church, and then later on, uh, we moved and became a part of an evangelical free church in the, in the city of Stevens Point. And uh, what I loved about my parents' uh, upbringing was that they focused on the Bible a lot. It, was, it wasn't, what does the church say, but it was, what does, what did the scriptures say? Like, what is... How does this line up with God's word? And that is really the heart of uh, the movement that this church is a part of, the Evangelical Free Church of America, is that we're always asking the question, well, what, is the, what does the Bible say? The Bible is our highest authority, and we really place a high emphasis on teaching the Bible. I know your pastor loves studying the Bible, loves teaching the Bible. It's very important, I would imagine, to you as a church. You're reading it together. You're discussing it. You're praying over the scriptures. And if you're like me, you can, you can fall in love with God's word, and that's great, to, but sometimes to the neglect of uh, listening for God in less tangible ways, in less concrete ways. Uh, and it can cause us to place a lot of emphasis. This is my own confession. I can place a lot of emphasis on the Bible. I can have a trinity that's God the Father, the Son, and the Bible. <laughs> that, can be my, that can be my God that I worship. Uh, and I don't place a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit. It's an underdeveloped I would say, uh, element of my own theology, my own belief systems. And I would imagine that's true for a lot of people uh, and a lot of people within churches and our movement. So I'm so excited that you all are studying the Holy Spirit, that you're devoting time, weeks and weeks on end to, uh, not, not on end, but to talk about the Holy Spirit in the series that you're in uh, with us, enjoying the presence of God's Spirit. I thought, what just a great title uh, to talk about God's Spirit. Uh, we're enjoying the presence of God. And I listened to Pastor Mitch's sermon last week and loved just the overview. You guys got through a lot of content talking about the overview of how the Holy Spirit was involved in the Old Testament and a little bit of a kind of a systematic understanding of who the Spirit is and how he comes uh, into the, the picture in, in the New Testament, applies the work of Jesus to us. And I know in the coming weeks you're going to go into a lot more detail about that. That's not what today's going to be. Today is a little bit of a, a character study. We're looking at one guy, as we, as we read about in Acts, we're looking at one man who is filled with the Spirit. Sort of a, an example, if you will, of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And what we're going to focus on this morning, and I think it's maybe printed in the bulletin, but the, the big idea is that God, God's Word spreads through Spirit-filled witnesses. God's word spreads, if you love to write things down, you can do that. God's word spreads through spirit filled witnesses. And that's just in keeping with the whole book of Acts. There's this theme of being a witness. So here's what I want you to do. I work with teenagers. We do this all the time. I want you to turn to someone near you, or if you're not close to someone, maybe you got to scooch or turn around or whatever. Uh, when you hear the word witness, what comes to mind for you? What, what does that evoke? What's a, what's a witness? Tell the person next to you. I'm going to do something right here. <clears throat> Are you thirsty? All right, all right, all right. 
was in his truck all afternoon. Well, so. Awesome. Um, okay, someone, let's do it. Let's brainstorm a little bit. What, what do you, when you hear witness, what do you think of? What comes to mind? They watched what happened. Yeah, they saw what happened. They watched what happened. Okay, someone else. Wait, observer. An observer. Yeah, okay. Somebody who can speak to what they saw. That's right. So not just someone who saw it, but someone who's actually helpful <laughs> in recounting what they saw. They're looking for a credible, like maybe a credible witness. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Witness who's come to mind? Courtroom. Yeah, it's courtroom language, right? That you're bearing witness or you're going to testify is another kind of uh, related word or idea. Yeah. Anyone else? Witness. Think of an accident. Yeah. Uh, uh, the witness fled the scene of the crime or something like that. Yes. Yes, I was in a car accident on a Friday, like a couple days ago, and uh, there were a couple witnesses. Thankfully, people stuck around and uh, we had to talk to the police. Um, but yes, those are all uh, languages or those are all ideas related to witness. Uh, and I'm going to argue, I'm going to show us in this text that God's word spreads through spirit-filled witnesses. These are people who have seen Jesus, who have experienced Jesus, and are not only have they seen Jesus, but then they're also doing the bearing witness thing. They're, they're proclaiming what they've, they've seen. And I, I think this fits really well with your mission as a church, that you're going as messengers. That's part of who you are, Good News Church. You've got a message, and you're going as messengers, hopefully to be witnesses to this Jesus who you've submitted your life to, you're submitting all of your life to. So we're going to see that it spreads through spirit-filled witness. And to do that, I'm going to illustrate a little bit. I'm bringing back... Uh, this is a little bit of a throwback. I know Pastor Mitch did this already for you one time. So do you guys remember the chocolate milk analogy? Okay? Maybe not. Okay. So the way this works is uh, I'm going to compare the Holy Spirit to chocolate milk. I brought some Wisconsin whole milk for you. Okay? If anybody wants, you can buy this off of me, half gallon. I think uh, a little bit less than a half gallon now. Uh, so the way it works is when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, we believe in Jesus, we commit ourselves to him, we confess with our mouth, believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, and then uh, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us. Pastor Mitch talked about that a little bit last week, and the theological term for that is indwell. The Holy Spirit indwells us or dwells inside of us, and so that kind of looks like this. Like uh, the Holy Spirit comes inside us and you know gets poured out into our lives. God pours the love of Christ into our lives. The Holy Spirit, okay. And so here's another person, blah, 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 and they get the Holy Spirit poured into them. That's really nice, okay. And uh, and then the uh, Holy Spirit gets poured out into this person's life. Now, question, show of hands, how many of you think that the let's the Holy Spirit? Oh no, the chocolate milk. How many how many of you think that uh, this this cup has chocolate in it? Like, huh? yeah, okay, that's good. This one does it have chocolate in it? Uh, this one, it's got chocolate syrup in it. Yeah, great. Okay, uh, is this cup filled with chocolate? No, it's kind of like sitting at the bottom, right? Yeah, this one too. Uh, none of them are filled with chocolate. There's kind of pieces floating around, but it is. Uh, we could, if we're talking theologically, say that it's indwelt. You know, there's there's chocolate milk or there's chocolate syrup in it, but it's not filled with chocolate syrup. And so you'll see language in the New Testament of people having the Spirit in them. It takes up residence and dwells among us. But then you'll also see this command, Paul will say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you want to ask, like, hmm, is that something that happens when you're converted? Or does that happen, like, later on? And it seems like, it seems like to be filled with the Holy Spirit is something we're commanded to do. It's an ongoing thing. And it's uh, when the, the Spirit is, is uh, influencing us, when, it's, when he is um, when he's taking control, when he's uh, impacting us or empowering us um, to be a witness, to uh, live holy lives, to do all sorts of things. And so in this chapter, in this, in this section of scripture, I should say, we're going to see that God's word goes forward. It spreads through spirit-filled witness. And our prime example, number one, is Stephen. Stephen. So it was already read, but go to Acts chapter 6. 
We're going to go through it bit by bit again. And we're going to see uh, him as a spirit-filled witness in three aspects of his life. Okay, if you like numbers, here it is. Three, the, the obligatory pastoral, three things. Okay, so first we're going to see him as a spirit-filled witness. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Uh, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should be giving up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and I mentioned it better with the names than I did, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. So right in the early days of the church, we've got uh, an ethnic issue, a racial discrimination issue, or an ethnic discrimination issue. You've got these Hellenists. Now, Hellenists is the Greek Jews, Jews who are, um, they're, they're Jewish, but they're also been influenced by Greek culture. Okay, so they're in the church, and then you've got the Hebraic Jews, who are, uh, they're from Israel, they're maybe from Jerusalem, they've, they've kind of kept themselves pure of Greek cultural influence, so they would maybe think of themselves as the purists. They are discriminating, or the widows are being discriminated against, uh, the Greek widows are being discriminated against. So uh, the church took up this ministry to help widows, uh, people who had lost their husbands, women who had lost their husbands. And when it comes time for the daily distribution or weekly distribution, I'm not really sure if it said, said daily in there or not. Yeah, the daily distribution. Uh, the, help, the Greek Jews are getting to the end of the line and they're like, wait, what? How come there's no food left for us? They're being neglected. And so they say, this isn't right. The apostles say, this isn't right. We need to give some people uh, the, the responsibility of making sure everybody is getting some food. So they need someone to create the spreadsheet, okay? They need someone to go into Google Sheets and create it, make sure everybody gets an equal amount, make sure it gets distributed fairly and evenly. And they choose Stephen amongst these others. Now, do they think to themselves, who's not very good at anything else? Who's, who's not a good communicator? Who's, uh, who's not very useful in some other things? We just, we just need someone to like tally up the, you know, count how many loaves of bread there are, count how many widows there are, and do the math, right? No, they're, they're looking for qualified people, qualified men, and they choose Stephen because he is full of wisdom and full of the Spirit. So he's uh, filled with the Spirit. Okay, so yeah, I'm going to see if I can do this. I forgot a I've got a spoon. I was going to bring a spoon. But if I do this, well enough. Oh, use a pen. Can I use a pen? That can be awkward. Here we you go. Just have to hand it back. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh, so gosh. gross. Okay, oh, so he's filled with the spirit, okay? So he's not just uh, has the spirit in well with him, but Stephen's a guy who's got the spirit stirred up inside him. And now, is this, is this filled with chocolate syrup now? It is, right? It's all over the place. Filled with the... Spirit. So, spirit-filled service. I'm going to have to get you a different you pen. You just keep that. That's yeah, there you go. <laughs> awesome. So, Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is uh, full of wisdom as well. And check this out. Stephen does the background job so that other people can do the upfront, what we think of as the upfront ministry. The, the preaching of the word and prayer, the, the holy kind of stuff. So, Stephen says, yeah, I'll, I'll do the behind-the-scenes stuff so that you all can be devoted to prayer, so that you guys can be devoted to ministering the, ministering the word. So let's do this. Let's brainstorm a little bit. What is an example of a thankless job in society? Not in the church, but just in society. What are like the jobs, the occupations that do not get recognized? They're thankless. Now you might have to think a little bit because 
They don't automatically pop to mind. But just throw it out there when, when something comes to mind. Garbage man. Garbage man. Yeah, how many of you have ever gone up to your, stopped your garbage? Excuse me, sir, sir. I'd just like to thank you for picking up my garbage every day. We're so grateful for you. No, we don't do that. We say they're late. They're late. <laughs> yeah. What else? What's another thankless job? Janitors, yeah, it's true. Garbage man, janitors, what else? Public works. Public works, like? Sewers, keeping the sewers working. It's true, yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad's a plover, uh, or he's a water employee, like he, uh, you know, charges people for their water. <laughs> he doesn't get thanked very much for that, yeah. Cashiers. Cashiers, yeah. Just gonna get, get a machine. What was that? The IRS? <laughs> yeah, the IRS. Yeah. I was thinking accountants. Like, they're the ones making sure all the numbers are adding up. And uh, you don't think, like, man, Google. Like, they've got some great accountants. We should just be so grateful for the accountants at Google or Amazon. Yep, they're so important, right? They gotta be. They gotta be. Those are the thankless jobs. And what about in the church? What are some things that Christians do in the church uh, that are thankless jobs? Child care. Child care, yeah. Like, we should all go over and, and it's, I mean, it's children's ministry, right? It's not child care. Uh, but <laughs> just sticking out for my children's ministry, folks. Yeah, it's true. Child care, yeah, yeah. What else? What's a thankless, thankless job? People who take time to, like, plan events and yeah. planners. Take the time to plan things. You bet, absolutely. Or show up early and set up. Yeah, yeah. You have flower beds or a lawn, the people that keep the weeds out. Yeah, they like <laughs> mow the lawn or pull the weeds. Absolutely. Those are all wives. Pastors' wives. It is a thankless, it is a thankless job for stabilizing your pastor. You guys should. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> it is. It is. Now, what I want you to notice is that Stephen, as we're going to see, is not, he's not what sometimes we think of when we think of background thankless jobs. Like, we might have the assumption that people are in those positions, because we live in a capitalistic, competitive society, so we think someone's in that job because they couldn't get something better, right? So, like, if the guy mowing the grass was any good at anything else, he'd do something else, right? But you're going to see, like, Stephen, boy, can preach. Like, he's going to give the longest sermon recorded uh, in the Bible, and uh, and the, the man can speak, but he says, you know what, I'll, I'll handle that. I'll be a part of that team. And so through spirit-filled service, check out what happens. Verse 7, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. Here's what I want you to hear. Some of you, God is calling you to do, and the Spirit will call you to do thankless jobs for Good News Church. And the word of God will spread in Woodstock because of that. Because of your spirit-filled service. And God knows. And God knows. And he's, he may be filling you with the spirit to do a thankless, a thankless job. To do service that no one will say thank you for. So that's the first one. Uh, God's word spread through spirit-filled service. The next one is spirit-filled speech. So God's word spreads through spirit-filled speech. And I'm going to stir my pen I'm going to stir my milk ahead of time and get some spirit-filled speech. It's starting to curdle up here, okay? So we're going to get some spirit-filled speech. Okay, take a look at chapter 6, beginning of verse 8. Then Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then 
some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up, and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the what? The spirit with which he was speaking. Capital S. The spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him up before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And they gazed at him, and all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It's kind of interesting. So he is speaking, and he's being accused. Tell me someone, or maybe uh, take a look at your Bibles and turn to the people next to you. This would be kind of fun. Uh, what's, what's he being accused of? What's like the actual charge against him? What is he being accused of by these rulers? Go, turn to the person. Verse 12, said the people or the scribes. And then verse 13, speak against this holy place in the law. But he speaks against Moses. He speaks about Spirit. 6.11. said this man never ceases to speak against this holy place in the law. Never ceases to speak against this holy place against the law. All right, someone shout it out. What's he being accused of? Someone tell me. Stirring the people. Stirring up the people, okay, by doing what? Speaking against Moses and God and the temple and the law. Speaking against God and Moses and, and the law. That's right. That's right. So he's being accused of dissing the temple. Now, in Jerusalem, the temple is the center of life. It's the center of commerce, the center of religious life. It's really, really important. And they're accusing Stephen. They're saying that he, he's wanting to change the customs of Moses. He's, wanting, he's, he's dissing the Torah, the, the books of Moses. He's dissing the law. He's dissing the temple. So they're accusing him of doing that. And, uh, and this is reason enough to kill him. This is reason enough to, um, to, uh, to stone him. Uh, and, and you see in verse 15, there's a little nod to Moses. This is kind of ironic. Uh, they're saying that he's, he's going against Moses, and yet the author of Acts, Luke, is writing, and he wants us to note that uh, when they look at his face, his face is like that of an angel, which I think is an allusion back to uh, the Exodus, where Moses, when he meets with, when he meets with God, his face is glowing, and he has to cover it with a veil. So ironi ironies of ironies, they're saying he's speaking against Moses, and yet he is uh, the Moses-like figure in, in this setting. And then he launches into his spirit-filled speech. Did you notice? Of course you did, because I made you say it out loud. Uh, that they couldn't withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he is speaking. So he's not just waxing eloquent because he went to school and because he knows all the things. Um, he's speaking by the spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he launches into this really, really long sermon. It is... If I read it to you, you'd fall asleep. It's so long. Okay, so I'm going to just kind of summarize it. Uh, and he goes through the history of God's people in the Old Testament, the history of Israel. And he highlights a couple of themes. So I pulled this from a commentary. I didn't uh, come up with this on my own. But he highlights these kind of three major themes. Remember, they've, 
they've basically charged him with being against Israel, right? With being against the temple, with being against Israel and its institutions, the temple, the Torah, its founding father, Moses, right? So he highlights in his sermon, as he's, as he's walking through the story of God and with his people, he highlights that God's purposes throughout the story have been bigger than the land of Israel. So he's talking about things happening in Egypt and things happening in Canaan. So outside, or Canaan is the land of Israel, but outside of, outside of the land specifically, uh, he highlights that God's presence is bigger than the temple, that God was present with them before they ever built a tabernacle or before they ever built a temple. Okay, and, and he even quotes passages of scripture where God says, I can't be contained within a building. I can't be contained with, within a tent. So he's highlighting God's purpose is bigger than the land. God's presence is bigger than the temple. And that God's people need to learn from their past mistakes. So it highlights a couple different times where people are rejecting God's messenger, where Moses comes to the people and they reject him. And, and he's drawing a comparison between Moses and Jesus. So God's purpose is bigger than the land. God's presence is bigger than the temple. And God's people need to learn from their past mistakes. And then he turns his, he's just talking about the Old Testament. They're like, oh, this is a pretty good sermon so far. And then he turns his sights on them. Okay. He goes after them. Verse 51, verse 51 with me of chapter seven. We skipped most of the sermon, but go to verse 51 where he turns to the people. Okay. And he says, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, I hope that Pastor Mitch never talks to you guys like that. I mean, that's just, that's cold, okay? He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Congratulations. You who received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. Now, throughout my life, I've been on a lot of settings where people don't believe in God uh, in, in college, in school, in high school, middle school, uh, various works, um, workplaces. And I'm always nervous to talk to people about Jesus. Like, does anybody else get nervous when they're trying to talk to people? Okay, I, I'm nervous. And I'm nervous because uh, they're going to not like me. <laughs> they're going to think I'm weird. Uh, they're not going to believe what I'm selling. They're, uh, they're going to ask me a question I don't know. Never have I ever had to confront the people who killed Jesus. <laughs> okay? These are the people, this is the Sanhedrin, the council who condemned Jesus, and Stephen's pointing a finger at them and saying, you murdered Jesus. And what does he think is going to happen to him? <laughs> right? uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty bold. And he's filled with the Spirit. He says it. You are resisting the Holy Spirit. Once again, this is just part of a broader pattern. And he's filled with the Spirit, again, with wisdom. Where does his wisdom and his power come from? Verse 10, that he's speaking by the Holy Spirit. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, uh, it's the first time I really remember this happening. I was at uh, some sort of a college days for kids kind of thing. Like, we were on campus, and I was, I was a little kid. And the teacher was saying something about Christianity, something about God, and kind of bagging on, you know, religious people or whatever. And I remember feeling like this kind of like welling up inside of me. Like, my face probably got flush. I felt like, ah, oh, like, I, I have to say something. And kind of, like, raise my hand, and the words kind of, like, blurted out of my mouth. I don't know. Have you ever, have you ever been there? 
uh, or I was in philosophy 101, and they're talking about the Abrahamic religions and how they're all the same, or how Christians are kind of backwards for believing certain things about the Bible, and same thing, I kind of felt this kind of welling up inside me, like, oh, someone has to say something, like, someone's got to, someone has to defend God here, or say something, and I, you know, raise my hand, and again, all eyes turn, and or I'm at a coffee shop, or I'm out on the disc golf course and bump into a, a stranger, and we're playing a couple holes together, and finally I kind of feel this like, oh man, like maybe I should, maybe I should like say something about Jesus. Maybe I should ask the, a question about about Jesus. And I think that is being filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that's uh, the stirring happening, the the you know spiritual stir stick going around in my heart, maybe in your heart. Uh, you've been there in public or at work or maybe with your family that doesn't believe in Jesus or thinks it's kind of loony that you do this on Sunday nights, that you get together uh, with other people who believe this stuff, and, and you feel kind of well up within you. You're filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and you, it doesn't always come out. It doesn't always come out uh, articulate or um, intelligent-sounding. Speaking as you're being filled by the Holy Spirit, and you guys, God's Word spreads through spirit-filled witnesses. I knocked my water bottle. God's word spreads through spirit-filled speech. And it, it will spread here. It spread there, back in the day, through spirit-filled speech, and it will spread in Woodstock through your spirit-filled speech. But it's not a risk-free thing to speak out boldly. We would be kidding ourselves if I were to just exhort you and say, go, do it, and all is going to be well. It is, it is risky. And Stephen knows that, and he finds out the hard way. He, he knows better than anyone. And so the next thing and the final thing we're going to see is that God's word spreads through spirit-filled sacrifice. Through spirit-filled sacrifice. Look at verse 54 in the following with me. Chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the spirit. Holy Spirit full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed at him. Ah! And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen's dragged outside the city. And as he is standing there bearing witness, he is filled with the spirit. He's filled with the spirit. The spirit wells up inside him. And he's able to do what none of us believe that we could do. If you read this passage, as I read this passage, as I've read about other Christians around the world suffering in the face of persecution, I think, there's no way. There's, I, would, I would run away. I would be so scared. I wouldn't say what I need to say. I would, I would recant. I would deny Jesus. I'd be Peter. You know what I mean? How, I wouldn't be able to do it. And yet, and yet Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit and he looks to heaven and he sees God, right? And they grab him ah, and they throw him outside and he's, and he's on the ground and he's waiting. He's feel the first stone coming and he yells, God, forgive them. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And the first stone hits and he sits there and he takes it 
and he gives up his spirit, and he goes to be with Jesus. And guess what happens? The word of God spreads like wildfire. Look at chapter 8. Look at chapter 8. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Okay, so everybody except the preacher, guys. Except the apostles. Everybody scattered, okay? Okay? Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So all, all the head honchos, all the apostles, stay in Jerusalem. Everyone else is scattered because they're sent out by the Spirit on a mission? No, because they're scattered. <laughs> they're scattered because of persecution. Ah, they run, they flee, and everywhere they go, they proclaim the good news about Jesus. And they're scattered, why? Because of Stephen's sacrifice. I mean, he's the, he's the one who raises the, the alarm and that, that causes the, the riots, the persecution to begin. Or at least he's the very first example. He's the very first, what we call a martyr. And that word martyr comes from the word, the Greek word for witness, uh, to bear witness to Jesus. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit as he makes the ultimate sacrifice. There was a, a church father in the first uh, century after the, uh, the Bible's written, um, like late uh, 100s, early 200s. His name is Tertullian. And he wrote this. He said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As what he noticed and what other people were noticing is that Christians were lining up to die in the Roman Empire. They were giving their lives. And people were looking at their sacrifice and saying, I think I want to know what that's all about. <laughs> I think if it's worth giving your life for, then maybe, maybe it's worth checking out. And amidst heavy, heavy, brutal persecution, the church grew. It exploded. It expanded. So sometimes, if you're part of the circles that I kind of grew up in, Christians can get a little bit weird about the government. They can get a little bit like, oh, well, we got to take back the government or we got to, you know, vote the right people into power and, and all this, right, to, to take back kind of a Christian nation, those sorts of things. But the truth of the matter is, is that the church has always spread when it's encountered opposition, opposition from the powers. And as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs, the sacrifice of the church, the willing sacrifice of the church, is, is the way that God, in his profound mysteriousness, that he, that he grows his church. And so... I'm, I'm not under any illusions that mm, us in this room will probably give our lives, give the ultimate sacrifice like Jesus, or like Jesus did, uh, but like Stephen did. Although maybe God calls you to a country that that's possible, or, uh, or maybe if things drastically change in the United States, I suppose. But I wonder, what sort of spirit-filled sacrifice is God calling you to make here in Woodstock? It's not always, sacrifice doesn't always involve our, our lives. It can involve our, our time. It can involve our possessions. When we are radically, some would say stupidly generous, if that's a sacrifice, 
my, some of my in-laws have looked at the way my parents are generous with their money and thought like, not my in-laws, sorry, that's Jenny's family. My family, my, uh, my relatives have looked at the way my parents spend their money and thought like, what? what's wrong with you guys? <laughs> like, why do you, why do you give away so much of your, of your income? Uh, when we when we give our time to spending time with one another as family, when we hang out with these people that we're part of the church together with, and we're always with them, we're sharing our lives with them. That that, that is a sacrifice. There's a sacrifice involved there. We can give up all all sorts of things. And so as as we kind of wrap things up, again remembering that God's word spreads, and I believe God's word will spread in Woodstock through your spirit filled sacrifice, through your spirit filled service through your spirit-filled speech, as the spirit wells up inside you, as you're with neighbors, as you're with coworkers, as you're, as you're with friends, as you're with relatives, that God's word will spread. God's word will spread through that. That is, that is the way God's word spreads, is through his spirit-filled witnesses. So what I want to do is just, I'm going to close by just praying, just taking a moment, I think it'd be appropriate, since we're talking about the Holy Spirit, to just leave some space. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm going to, I'm going to pray. And I, I would just ask you to, to take a moment and, and ask the Spirit to speak more specifically than I can. But I'm just going to ask a few questions in, in prayer, and then I'll, I'll close us in prayer. And then we'll begin to take communion together as a family. So, let's pause. Spirit of God, we want to hear from you. We confess that we don't take enough time to hear from you. So consider this an act of worship. Spirit, would you prompt us what, is, what are we being filled with? What are the men and the women in this room? What am I being filled with that is in competition with your spirit? We want to remove those things. Lord, would you convict us? We want to be filled with your spirit. Spirit, how might you be calling us to humbly <coughs> serve others? so that they can exercise their, their gifts and their responsibilities. Spirit, show us what, what can we sacrifice? What can I sacrifice for Jesus so that your word, your kingdom <clears throat> might spread? Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. And it is your one spirit that unites us and that allows us to come to the table together as brothers and sisters. So we don't enter into communion lightly, but with gratitude for what you have done. For gratitude for your sacrifice, Jesus. For gratitude for the brothers and sisters that we take this meal together with. Would you fill us with your spirit that your word might advance in Woodstock and around the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 <clears throat>